Hi, my name's Hudson, and I'm a geoholic. Hello, my name is Dr. Nick Smolovsky, and I'm also a geoholic. We appreciate you tuning in for this radiant edition of Bad Elf's Seconds of Spatial News. We Bad Elves live our lives one spatial second at a time, and we know you, geoholics, do too. On the launch pad for this week's story is Umbra's new commercial radar satellite. Recently, riding on the back of a Falcon 9 SpaceX rocket, the company Umbra has launched its new micro radar satellite into orbit. If you're a gamer like me, you may have heard the name Umbra and thought about the Umbrella Corporation from Resident Evil. Wow, slightly spooky sounding, this next generation intelligence company has no plans for creating the zombie apocalypse, I promise. Instead, the company has plans of putting up a constellation of commercial Earth observation microsatellites. More specifically, this first satellite utilizes SAR, or Synthetic Aperture Radar. This is used to accurately map the planet's surface. This new, unique imaging payload has the ability to work through clouds, smoke, and even total darkness with a data resolution of as good as 10 inches. Soon, geospatial consumers like you and I will be able to easily access their new data via service they call Canopy. If you've ever used satellite data or had to sequester it, you probably know that it can be a huge pain. Umbrella claims Canopy takes the complexity out, making new missions and data acquisition easy. You should check them out if you're in the business of studying the Earth and its environment. All right, that does it for this week's Bad Elf Seconds of Spatial News. We hope you enjoyed the designated news of the week. If you have any questions about this story or about Bad Elf GNSS products, please feel free to contact me via LinkedIn or the Geoholics channels. Ciao, Geoholics. Till next time. That doesn't wake you up, shoots nothing well. <laughs> I feel like I went back in a time machine to before my days. <laughs> Welcome back, shoots. Good to see you, buddy. I was. Uh, I'm sorry, I had to miss last week. That's fellas. okay. It That's was. Okay. A, it was an honest mistake on my part. No problem whatsoever. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Geoholics podcast, where we are here to entertain and educate you. We are coming to you from the Diamondback Land Surveyor Studio in the heart of Phoenix Suns country. Absolutely, go Suns! That, pretty exciting. That game three was a little rough. Oh, not good. We're boys. gonna. Pretend that never happened. Not a little good. bit more than a little rough. Oh, man. <laughs> they had it within four, and then it just disappeared on them. I, I think they call that the wheels falling off. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. We'll get Booker some rest and yep, yep. come back for game four. Turn it around tomorrow. Hopefully, we'll have a lot to talk about next episode as far as that goes. <laughs> so we are, we've, we've reached episode 90. So uh, yikes, if you think about it, 10 more episodes, and we need to reinvent this idea. Yeah, I don't know what to do after this. <laughs> no idea. I right? guess we'll have to like go to like Dirt Bike Guys or something. <sighs> don't they have three numbers, some I of them? I don't oh, yeah. know. If anybody out there has any suggestions on what to do. That was, a good, that was a good poll on the Dirt Bike Guys. You got me thinking about that now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Shoot us an email, info at thegeoholics.com, and uh, suggestions are welcome um another thing can you guys believe that it, we're probably like a week or two away from our two-year anniversary 
Two really? Week, two weeks. It was, two August, weeks was it? August 1st is our two-year anniversary. Was it? Yep. Oh, yep. man. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. We'll have to bring a cake in. We should. We should have a we should, happy sure. hour for sure. No, yeah, we'll do something, no doubt. So we've got another jam-packed show this week, and I am so excited about it, and I'm sure that you, our listeners, are going to love it as well. So as Shoot said, let's do this. Absolutely. Episode 90 is Julius Peppers. He, oh, okay. He, yep, yep. he was the number two overall pick in 2002. Do you guys have a guess who was number one? 2002. Was it a quarterback? Yes. Way too young for that. Let's just say Julius Peppers had a way better career. Oh, I don't know. David Carr was oh, number geez. one overall. And then number two was Julius Peppers to the Carolina Panthers. He was the NFL Defensive Rookie of the Year in 2002. In his career, he was a nine-time Pro Bowler, three-time first-team All-Pro, three-time second-team All-Pro, 2000 and 2010's All-Decade Team, 100 Greatest Bears of All Time, and he's in the 100 Sack Club. That's a good one. Yeah. I, no I, argument. I, I, not Hall of Fame yet, right? No, not yet. I, I I think he retired in 2012. What's the What's or, the window there? I think it's a five-year window, so he should be up there. Coming, yeah. But, okay. Yeah, gotcha. he should he'll get he, in, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. He's not a first ballot kind of guy, but he'll get yeah. there eventually. Yep, yep. Good choice on that. PJ, uh, tell us about that opening number. Yeah, so what you just heard there was Still of the Night by Whitesnake. Uh, Whitesnake is a hard rock band formed in England in 1978. The group was originally put together as a backing band for singer David Coverdale, who had recently left Deep Purple. Uh, though the band quickly developed into their own entity, Coverdale is the only constant member throughout their history. White Snake released their eponymous album in 1987, which became their biggest success to date, selling over 8 million copies in the U.S. White Snake's early sound has been characterized by critics as blues rock, but mid to 1980s, the band slowly began moving towards a more commercially accessible hard rock style. And our good friends, the Black Moods, actually toured with them a couple of years ago. They did good indeed. fast fact. Hey, Absolutely. we know those guys. We know those guys for sure. And they actually, if uh, like on YouTube, if you do a search for the Black Moods and go to their channel or whatever, uh, they got a really cool video there, like kind of like. I don't know, documenting their tour with White Snake, so it's it's pretty neat. Pretty that's cool. gotta be that's gotta be yeah, you know for memorable sure. for sure. Yeah, if you like White Snake, definitely check out the Black Moods. Uh, you'll be glad you did. Shout out to this week's highlighted friend of the program. It is Safety Apparel. What do you got for that shoots? Matthew Stansberry and Safety Apparel are reinventing Safety Apparel with the highest quality materials and most functional and versatile vest the safety industry has ever seen. Safety Apparel offers ANSI CSA compliant high visibility survey and construction vests and reflective traffic control gloves, hats, stickers, and patches. They can also provide you with your company logo and other designs on vest shirts jackets etc with many application options including but not limited to silkscreen sublimation patches embroidery and heat transferred images they can provide your company with the clothing and art you need to look sharp and professional send them an email at info at safety with your safety needs and they will do their best to get you headed in the right direction Wow, you killed that. He's on a roll. You know what? He needs a day off. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) To get refocused. That was like, wow, that was great. That's because I'm not drunk tonight. (laughs) That'll help. (laughs) Always always helps. And let's not forget to mention, if you send them an email and inquire about any of the the items that Shoots just told you about, be sure to mention you're a geoholic for the VIP treatment. VIP. VIP. All right. The Trimble Geospatial Weekly Words of Wisdom. I love this segment. I don't know about you guys, but uh, 
I'm gonna let I'm gonna let you guess who's quote this. Abraham is. Lincoln. No. Are you ready? <laughs> Although it could be. Here we go. If your dreams don't scare you, they are too small. If you want to stand out from the crowd, give people the reason not to forget you. Richard Branson. Sir Richard Branson. Sir Richard Branson. Yeah. Yes. I, I knew that was coming. <laughs> we actually, was, uh, with this week, how could it not uh, be? I actually was at the office yesterday, too, for the first time in forever, yeah. and I got out of my floor on the elevator, and there's two Richard Branson quotes on the wall right there. No way. Yeah. So I took a picture of him, and I was like, this is great. Yeah, I love that guy. That's awesome. I love that guy, too. With this week, how could that not be... The words of wisdom. No doubt. No, good guess. Good guess, boys. Uh, catch up with the boys. PJ, I'm sure you got something to say about uh, Mr. Branson, possibly. Yeah, I'll yeah. go ahead and, and take that off real quick. Awesome. Flight of the Unity 22. Super cool to be coming out of New Mexico. I mean, Sir Richard Branson started that 17 years ago. It's his dream wow. to go up there. So for that to come to fruition, I mean, obviously, that, that guy... Him and Elon are the two mad scientists right now. And sure. I, I'm not sure if you saw, he posted a picture of them two and Elon was there before his flight. That's so he was, there, mm-hmm. he was there to support him. So really cool. I think that's a, an interesting um, idea on how to get up there. Obviously, it's not as reusable as, as Elon's idea. Um, and maybe not as innovative, but cool to see him get up there and yeah. it's going to be commercial. But um, other than that, I'm back with a uh, 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 TV recommendation, TV oh, show recommendation. Right. This one has gotten me pretty excited. I haven't been this excited in a while. Have huh. you guys seen uh, Ted Lasso on I Apple, heard it's Apple TV? I heard it's Absolutely amazing. amazing. <laughs> so I'm on episode seven right now. There's 10 episodes in the first season. Season two actually comes out July 23rd, um, but it is awesome. It's so good. Yeah, and it's like, it's casual, it's comedy, it's you're laughing, but there's some deeper layers to it that really, hmm. really strike a chord. So check it out for sure. It's a, it's a good watch. And I, I, after seeing this, I'm going to have to go check out more on Apple TV Plus because I think that... I heard there's some good ones on there. Yeah, I think they... The Morning yeah. Show or something Yeah, Morning like Show. For for All Mankind is an interesting one. That one's if like the Russians won the space race and we lost, like what world would be, the world would be like today. Never. That would never never happen. Never (laughs) happen. I think uh, Apple TV is probably the one subscription that I'm not hijacking from somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I think I had like a free year of it or something when I got my phone, and then I just started paying for it. So now I have I have a reason to explore it. But yeah, Ted Lasso, check it out. Season two coming out soon. I'm hooked. I did see the commercial for Dave last night. And oh, I'm like, oh, I love I'm still going to watch that one. Love. So, I, that so one's my next one up on the list. I was obsessed with season one. And I still think it's super funny. I've probably watched it a handful of times. Um, season two, terrible. Really? Mm. Yeah. Me and my buddy were barely hanging wow. in there watching so it. So just watch season one and then quit? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an update on season two if it comes around. Be- okay. This last episode, no spoilers, but Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was in the... <laughs> so that was kind of an interesting cameo. That, yeah, that sounds interesting for that wow. type of show. Anyways, that was a lot of talking for me. No. Yes, how are I, you? I'm doing well. I'm back in the studio. I feel bad. I left you guys hanging last week. I apologize to you guys and the listeners as... Now you get to hear my lovely voice again. but Those, uh, those pipes were missed. Exactly. Well, when you came back with a beautiful ad read like that, oh, it's hard to hey, not accept you your know, apology. I just needed a little sleep. That's all. Uh, <laughs> I got my Mets shirt on today to represent Pete Alonzo last night in nice. the, the home run derby. I watched it. Everybody else looked gassed. That guy looked like he was ready for another four rounds. Unbelievable. He's, uh, and then you didn't even mention the Conor McGregor fight. I thought you'd bring that one up. I'm out on Conor. That did was you, it did for you, me. Did you lose any money on that or... No, I was I I texted you guys. I was yeah, on, you Dustin. Were on Dustin. Yeah, you went I, with it. Mm. I've been burnt on Connor too many times. Now am I going to watch every fight that he's in moving forward? If he fights again, hundred percent, I'm going to buy every fight. Oh, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to bet on him anymore. <laughs> Hold on, let me let me give you the uh, Dustin Poirier quote of the night. Oh, okay. you ready? Yeah, you guys probably heard this. Karma's not a bitch; it's a mirror. 
Yeah, I like that. Was that awesome? He's like, I hope he gets home to his beautiful family. Yeah, right, yeah. And Connor was still going too. It, that that was too Such far. It was too far. Yeah, that, that yeah. was a little much. But uh, other than that, it's, it's been pretty slow around here. Other than it's hot as hell. So what about you, Didi? <sighs> I'm sweating in the studio even. Um, big weekend coming up, thanks to uh, Big Shoots. Oh, absolutely. It's the the Cubs and Cubs are in town this weekend. So uh, going Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Super excited about that. Wow, that's a hell of a weekend. Was, Triple header. Got a buddy coming in from high school. So I'm sure there's going to be some stories come next week. Can man? Uh, half can? Half can? No, 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 no. Uh, Pooh Bear, actually. Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> Pooh Bear. Oh, why not half can when <laughs> yeah. it could be Pooh Bear? <laughs> But uh, back to back to the uh, Virgin Galactic thing. I saw that a company, and I've never heard of this company till today, Omaze, I think. Uh, they're actually giving away two seats to a future flight. Yeah. Yep. Pretty pretty slick Should about that. Should we just apply for you? 100%. I actually, yep. not to get t- too far down this rabbit hole again, but I was listening to a podcast with Scott Galley, who famously holds the record for longest consecutive time spent in space. But uh-huh. he was giving a forewarning talking about, um, it was actually Dax Shepard's podcast. He was asking him, what did you, what would you warn people about yeah. going up there? What do you think about that? Because right. like, you train your whole life to go to space, and then now anyone can go as long as you have some coin in your in your pocket. Yep. And he said a lot, he's, he's going he's gonna to be surprised if p- people are going to go up there, yeah. and they're not going to like it as much as they think. Like When you get up there, the gravity is like you're Heads pounding, all the blood goes up to your head, and that zero gravity stuff—it's not as comfortable as you may seem. You're, you, and you're not up there for that long, obviously. Mm. But he's like, I think a lot of people think it's going to be this glamorous thing, but it's really like stressful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. sounds like it sucks. That's interesting. <laughs> we got to take up a collection and get uh, producer Jake up there. I 100%. think so. We'll start a GoFundMe. Let's do it. Let's do it for <laughs> sure. My uh, my TV recommendation—I don't know if I mentioned this or not—but we started watching Ray Donovan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love it. Okay, love so that's a Amazon Prime. Prime. It is. Yep. Got it. Yep. It's I've amazing. Seen it on there. Really, really good. Highly recommend it. All right. Let's move on with this safety apparel, safety share, and other things to worry about. Again Shoot. by Matthew Stansberry. Do you He's have some double duty tonight? Yes, he is. It's a well, big night for uh, Mr. Uh, Stansberry. As we are in Arizona and it's hot and the sun is really bright, I wanted to talk about skin cancer due to sun exposure. That's another something to worry about. Are you bringing this up because I came in the studio very tan today? No. I, I, <laughs> hey, I picked this I picked this long before right, I saw right, your good. your sunny face. You can, stellar, you, stellar. You can, call it, you can call it a savage tan if you want. <laughs> uh, okay, so the sun is essential, essential to all life on Earth. However, too much exposure to the sun can be harmful to us. Excessive exposure to ultraviolet light, also called UV rays, obviously, emitted from the sun can... can m- cause many skin conditions as well as skin cancer excuse me there are many effects the sun has on our skin a little bit of exposure can help us get vitamin d which is a good thing most effects from sun exposure are not good however some skin conditions caused by sun exposure include wrinkles freckles discolored skin benign tumors and skin cancer there are three types of skin cancer basal cell carcinoma squeamish cell carcinoma yeah that sounds bad i had to ask the lovely carrie for that pronunciation and then melanoma the best thing to do is avoid excessive exposure to the sun and tanning beds altogether wear sunscreen to protect your skin from uv rays spf 30 will protect you from uvb rays and zinc oxide will protect you from uva rays make sure to reapply it frequently when swimming or sweating especially out on the golf course the majority of exposure to the sun in our lifetime occurs during childhood. While it may be too late to worry about whether you had adequate protection when you were a kid, it's not too late to protect your kids or other young family members from being overexposed to the sun. So we're just more informed now than we used to be. Yep. Periodically check yourself for irregular moles or markings on your skin, a new lesion on your skin, a new mole, a change in an, an existing mole may indicate skin cancer 
and then go to WebMD and don't f- think you're going to die. Self-diagnose. But, yeah. I do it all the time. Yeah. I do it all the time. Cut it, and if you see a change in your mole, try to cut it out yourself with a kitchen knife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good advice. There's, I like there's that. all sorts of surgeries and stuff like that, like the Mohs surgery where they dig it out of your skin. and oh, it, yes. it, it, Yeah, but just avoid it. You know, if you can, put on sunscreen. I know I'm out golfing regularly, and I reapply as much as I can, and I still get a yep. tan, and the lovely Carrie yells at me. But uh, yeah, for Arizona, stuff. that's a good one. It's a really good one. And with our guests this evening and our topic. Also, when you're on a boat. Exactly. Reapply often. Jake has when mentioned you, it many times. When you're on the water, it's <laughs> bouncing off the water. It's reflecting Those up rays. at you. Yep. 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 Water yep. rays. Yep. I actually, speaking of cancer, I went and had a PSA test done this past week. You know, just took blood, blah, blah, blah. I also checked my testosterone, right? Because mm-hmm. I feel like I'm slowing down a little bit as I get Uh-oh. older. Funny, funny stuff. First of all, PSA came back totally normal, which is good. My testosterone was higher than it was three years ago. Yeah. That's because you're a man. How does that happen? How does it even yeah, happen? You're you like, fired up on the podcast. You should grunt. <laughs> like, just like, arr, arr, arr. there we go. <laughs> All right. Good stuff. Thanks, Shoots. Absolutely. All right, let's get into the meat of the episode. We've got two Davids with us this evening, uh, which is fairly unusual. I don't think this has happened with, to us before, but we've got a great topic, that being hydrographic surveying. We're going to do some self-introductions here, get to know them a little bit. So I'm going to let uh, David O go first. Why don't you give us your name, your current job, and role, and as an icebreaker, who or what is or was your favorite cartoon character? So, David O, you're first. All right. Well, first, I want to thank you guys for inviting me. I'm, I'm very thankful for that. And um, I do want to mention one thing before I introduce myself. All that sports talk and not one mention of the Tampa Bay Lightning winning this. Oh. You know, <laughs> they dented I should up take the my cup. shirt off right now and do like a Kucherow interview <laughs> with a Bud Light and do it with shirtless just because you didn't mention it. But okay, oh, I love it. I'll, I'll take that. So anyway, I'm Dave O'Brien. I'm the founder of Sartec Solutions. I do have a 50-50 partner, Mr. Brown, who also keeps things running. Um, we started in 2004, geospatial firm. We have about 100 employees right now, um, and we pretty much map everything. Tonight, we're obviously talking about hydrographic surveying, but we map everything from the air, underground, underwater, nice. you know, with drones and with autonomous vehicles, all kinds of cool stuff that I never thought surveying would be. Um, I am... I am a UMaine graduate from the University of Maine. So when I talk and talk real fast, you'll think I'm from Northern Alabama, but I'm not. I'm from Northern Maine. So keep that in mind. Um, I will probably at this point, that's pretty much everything you need to know about me. So you can introduce the other David. All right. And your favorite cartoon character? Oh, my favorite cartoon character. Now, this is going to sound very weird. I'm not much of a cartoon guy. So I was taking my little girls to the movies probably about a decade ago. And we were going to go see a movie. And I don't remember what movie, but it was sold out. So there was nothing else but an animated film called Up. And it was about some grumpy old man. Yeah. Yes. And I just love that bird, Kevin. It would do this squawking noise, and yes. I would laugh hysterically. And to this day, that's my favorite probably animated cartoon character. So yeah. Kevin and, the bird. And the dog, Doug. Another good one. Oh, absolutely. yeah. yeah. That was a great show, no doubt about it. For good sure. choice on that. David G., you're up, buddy. Hey, guys. How are you doing tonight? Fantastic. Thanks for being here. All right. Yes. Yeah, so um, I've been with Servtech Solutions for a few years now. My background is in marine biology. I've been doing sonar surveys and hydrographic survey type of work for a little over a decade now. And um, yeah, my passion is to uh, explore the seafloor and map out the habitat. Uh, lately, I've been doing a lot of mapping and um, having a lot of fun with Servtech. We get to do all kinds of hydrographic jobs. My favorite 
cartoon character, I think, was uh, would have to be Leonardo from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That's a leader of the group. He was always the he was the turtle with the plan. Yeah, no doubt about it. Good choice there. I got to ask these guys, of course. So, PJ, who's your favorite cartoon character? Oh, jeez. I don't know. For some reason, um, I like the Rugrats a lot. What was it? Tommy? Tommy or, Pickles. Tommy. Tommy Pickles, yeah. yeah. You're not a Chucky Finster kind of guy? No, no, Tommy. <laughs> How do you know all this? <laughs> I watched it when I was My a kid. My goodness, I think I know who you're going to say, but after that, I don't know. Who, what's your guess? I was probably something from like Toy Story. Or... Oh, it's got to be Woody. Woody yeah. yeah, I'm yeah, Woody yeah. and yeah, Hudson's course. Buzz. Yes, yes, yes. Other, yes. Otherwise, it's it's Homer Simpson. <laughs> yeah, I love that's Homer. Who I yeah, that's good. That's who I aspire to be. Or Cartman. Cartman. That was a good one when I was little. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Ken? Oh man, for me it was uh, Speed Racer. Go Speed Racer. Go Speed Racer. Mach Go Five. Speed buddy. Racer. Go. Always wanted that car. Still do actually. You get the Mach 5? I'm trying, man. If I could find it, I'd buy it. <laughs> All right. I was going to say, oh, yeah? as soon as I heard Dave's voice, I knew he was from the Northeast. I Which heard that Dave? accent. Dave O. Dave O. Okay. And then yeah. he said he's from Maine. I'm like, oh, that's why he sounds like my mother. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a positive comment or not. So uh, she's, from, she's from Maine as well. So. <laughs> All right, well, guys. You know, Maine is always think we know each other. So I probably. Oh, maybe. Really yeah. Mother. You never know. What's, she, isn't there like, what's the hot dogs up there you always talk Flo's about? Flo's hot dogs. Flo's the hot red, dogs. Yeah, Flo's. And then the red hots. You know, everybody likes those red hot dogs. Natural oh. casing. Absolutely. Oh, God damn. Now, we're, now we're talking my language. Now he's hungry. <laughs> now he's yeah. hungry. Well, my mother's a goat. Roper. Goat roper. A goat roper. No yeah. kidding. Yeah. What does that even Where, mean? did she grow up in Maine? You know? she's, she's from New York originally, but she moved to York, Maine. Oh, I was on the coast. So you guys are rich then. I understand. No, <laughs> far from it. <laughs> uh, he's holding out on his shoots. Uh, yeah. I, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting for that inheritance money. Is she nice. a friend of the program? <laughs> yeah. She's a Patreon. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you barbecue with the bushes? Oh, the yeah. Weekend? And Kenny Bunkport. We hang out with them all the time. <laughs> oh my god you guys could go on for hours on this one i'm sure but we have more important things to yes. get to so <laughs> let's our, get down to business yes our topic this evening and this is awesome because you know what 90 shows we've never talked about hydrographic surveying and of course that is our topic this evening and i'm really excited to have these guys uh be a part of it so let's keep it simple right off the bat and kind of define what hydrographic surveying is and david g i'm gonna let you start off with this one how would you define hydrographic surveying? Hydrographic survey is the science of mapping the seafloor, and that can encompass uh, many different aspects of survey, and that can refer to bathymetry, which is measuring the water depth, and it can also be underwater imaging using uh, sonar um, to measure um, sound intensities. Hydrographic survey is used for a lot of things like um, identifying obstructions for navigation, for search and recovery. And most of the time it involves using sonar. The old way they used to do it uh, would be using manual techniques, but almost all hydrographic survey these days is done by sonar or LIDAR. Awesome, thank you for that. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about the different techniques here in just a second. Uh, David O, did you have anything to add to that specifically? Yeah, I would, I would touch on the one thing that a lot of people always ask me is the difference between a bathymetric survey and a hydrographic survey. And um, hydrographic is kind of the general term for the entire underwater mapping realm. So you just heard David say there's a lot of different things you can map underwater. You can do side scan, which is more imagery. 
Um, you can do interferometric, you can do multi-beam, you can do single beam, you can do geophysics, magnetometer, whereas bathymetric survey is just depths. So you're just measuring the depth of, you know, basically the elevation of the seafloor. So on one hand, which is really important to survey, as most days we're measuring depths, but there may be times where we're mapping hard bottom. You know, we're mapping um, different types of vegetation, seagrass or other things. So it's not always about depths. And I know that may upset some other surveyors out there, but there's more to hydrographic. And you might be looking for, um, um, with magnetometer surveys, um, submerged mines, for example, that, that they had in minefields years ago. And you can pick it up with, you know, the, ma the magnetic showing up the, you know, the mines down there on the bottom. So gotcha. bathymetric is depth and hydrographic is the whole realm of underwater surveying and mapping, mapping basically. So if, if you were doing like, a, a, I don't know, a survey of a, a, a boat wreck or something, that would be considered a hydrographic survey, not necessarily a bathymetric survey. Is that right? No, it depends on your sensor. So okay. Okay. The, the things we have to learn about, it's a, it's a great realm out there now because I tell my guys all the time, we have a geophysical mapping department on land. And a lot of that same geophysics is used underwater as well. So it's a lot of crossover. But if you were doing a shipwreck, you might use side scan, which gives you really high detailed, almost looks like an image, but there's no bathymetry on it. But if you ran multi-beam over it, you'd get a point cloud like LIDAR. And so you would get bathymetric, bathymetric information, but you'd still get the wreck in pretty high detail. So it could be both, honestly. Gotcha. Okay. Well, thanks for clarifying that. I was always curious. Um... I got, I got something really quick too. Yeah, this is what it. it reminds me of. Mm -hmm. Have you guys seen Drain the Oceans? It's a National Geographic oh. program. It's on Disney yeah, Plus, though. Yeah, but it kind of reminds me of kind of what we're talking about now, where they scan these different shipwrecks oh, wow. and then take that data and and create a model of what it would mm -hmm. look like if there just wasn't any water there. Oh wow, that's pretty yeah. cool. So yeah, that's, I've seen it. It's awesome. It's yeah. awesome. So. Yeah, I've seen that, and uh, that's exactly what we're talking about. They'll go out there with multi-beam echo sounders and create this massive point cloud and create a 3d surface off of it and that's the type of stuff that we we do at surf tech all the time yeah that's awesome definitely check that out it's, a, it's an interesting watch so interesting and so dangerous i'm sure this type of surveying comes with a, a whole another level of, of danger and risk that typical land server aren't used to but before we get into that i want to have a little hydrographic surveying history lesson uh -oh. and talk about you know how the methods have evolved because i did a little research primarily on wikipedia and a couple other websites <laughs> and real reputable sources yeah real reputable <laughs> sources you know me i i go right for the best um and what I, what I found out, I mean, hydrographic surveying has been around like forever. Like as long as people have been sailing, people have yeah. been doing some form of hydrographic surveying. Mm -hmm. And some of the early methods were what I found out, line and pole surveying, wire drag surveying, which is really, really cool. And then of course, as was previously mentioned, LIDAR, side scan devices, single beam, multi-beam sounders. Um, have you guys done any line and pole hydrographic surveying? Well, it's interesting. We to this day, I mean, if you're going to check some of the, the, the sonar, because you have to understand sonar is a system where it's sending down sound through a water column. And if you don't have your water column values set up correctly, you can get bad values. So if you're under 25 feet of water, a lot of times we'll just pull it with um, a 25 foot pole with GPS on it and get elevations of the check. So we do that, you know, we do that a lot. It's, it's, there's nothing like actually physically occupying the ground to get an elevation. So it's, you know, it's when you're doing it with sure. sound, it's a little bit more abstract. It's quicker, more efficient, but mm -hmm. it's, you know, you can't, you're not physically on the ground. So yeah. we do that quite often. 
Yeah, I mean, I can remember like back when I lived in Southern Illinois, we did a lot of work for some of the uh, open pit mines there. And of course they had ponds and things like that. And we would just get like a, you know, a John boat and go out there with like a 25 foot level rod or whatever. And and a a rod with a prism so you could get a X and Y and then the Z would be, you know, taken from the measurement from the the level rod or whatever. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, that was very archaic way of doing it, I'm sure. It was a few years ago. uh, Compared to what they can do right now. But the wire drag serving, are either one of you guys a familiar with that technique i thought it was really interesting when i was reading about it i am not only what i've seen on the internet yeah yeah it's pretty cool <laughs> I, it's it's amazing what they came i mean so i don't know it's just ingenious i guess mm-hmm. you know to yeah. come up with some of these things it's crazy so let's talk about the cool stuff and i know uh davo you mentioned the lidar stuff and side scan device single beam multi beam let's talk a little bit about you know couple of these technologies and the, the, the benefits and applications of each. So why don't we start with maybe the side scan devices that you mentioned. So Dave, uh, Dave, I'll let you start with that one. Okay. And, and I'll probably hand it off to David Graves. At sure. Some yeah, point. He, probably, for sure. he probably knows more about side scan than I do. Go for it. But, but, but side scan is, is a really high frequency um, sonar. So it gives you very high detail, but it does not give you bathymetry. So you basically get an image of, of whatever you're looking at. And then they mosaic the images together. The interesting thing about side scan, and David could probably fill you in more on this, is right directly below Nader, right directly below the boat, you don't get data. So that's why it's called side scan. So mm. you get imagery on both sides. And then when they mow that you have to do overlap and take out that that blank value right underneath. David, is there anything you would add about side scan? Yeah, I think uh, you covered it pretty well there. With side scan, they're measuring uh, the intensity of the return, uh, called backscatter, where they're mapping that out in, uh, into a two-dimensional image. And it's good for uh, get, getting what looks like kind of a, kind of a, a photo, kind of a grainy photo of what's underneath the, uh, the seafloor so, or underneath the water on the seafloor. And what's what's cool about it, if you if you look up side scan imagery, you can see what looked like shadows behind objects. And so before the days of, of sonar bathymetry, um, sometimes they would use those shadows and measure the shadow versus the the uh, the depth and the distance to more or less get an idea of how tall these objects were mm. that they're seeing with this side scan sonar. Um, whereas, of course, nowadays with uh, something like multi-beam bathymetry, we would just, we'd get a cloud of points all over it. So we would have elevations all over the object. So I could tell you exactly how tall it is, but uh, hmm. that's something that it's useful for. I, I've used it quite a lot in the past for benthic habitat assessments. So what I would do there is you can measure the oysters or you can uh, visualize the oysters versus the soft seabed around them because of the difference in the intensity of the return. So um, if you were to map that out in black and white, uh, you can make it look like the, those oyster reefs are these uh, massive black splotches on otherwise white background. So um, you can um, measure the, uh, the acreage of the oysters that you have doing it that way. So it almost, it almost sounds like a, almost like a like a like a fish finder on steroids. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll touch on something. I mean, yep. the the police officers or somebody looking for bodies or somebody that's drowned, it's a very easy piece of equipment to set up. You don't have to have a really expensive mount. 
you know, you can just tow it as a tow fish behind the boat and collect this imagery. So it's, it's a very easy piece of equipment to use and work with, and you get really good detail of what's underwater. I mean, you may be thinking, well, why don't you just use a camera? Well, a lot of times the water is so murky that you can't take pictures of the seafloor, but you're mm -hmm. actually using sound to visualize the seafloor and see what's down there. So they use it a lot of time in search and rescue. It's just a very simple way to see what's on the seafloor in high detail. Gotcha. I've seen it on that show with the alligator hunters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they use those things. They put those big sonars in there, and yeah, there you go. That's and awesome. These guys are using it for a much better yeah. <laughs> reason than, yeah, no than shooting an alligator in the head. <laughs> right. So you mentioned single beam and multi-beam sounders. Um, why don't you guys talk a little bit about the, you know, the primary differences of those two technologies? Okay, well, I'll start off with single beam because it's probably the most basic um, we probably bought our first single beam 15 years ago. Um, and basically it just uses a single ping of sound. It pings the bottom, it gets a return, measures the speed of, you know, the speed of sound through water. And so you get a depth. And so you get a depth at, at, at a location. And as you run a profile line, you get depths along that line. So you don't get any detail, you just get a profile. So you just get elevations along a line and they typically very closely spaced together you know, it pings at a very high rate. So you get a profile of what's on the bottom. So if you're looking for something, it's not really going to show you what's down there, but it's going to give you really accurate bathymetric, um, you know, elevation data. Um, and so typically in the old days before some of this other technology, you just run a grid every 50 feet or every 100 feet, you'd run profile lines. And then you'd probably run perpendicular to them to check your data. So you'd run back over those lines at a perpendicular angle and 90 degrees. And you should get the same elevations where you cross those lines um, to make sure your equipment's working correctly. Um, and so at the end of it, I don't know how much you guys know about surveying, but it's like the old fashioned way of just doing a topo grid out in the field. You shoot a grid every 50 feet or 100 feet or 250 feet. Right. And that's pretty much single beam. And it's first return. So if you got suspended sediment or a soft bottom, you're probably usually going to get the top of that silt, you know, so it's not really going to show you the hot bottom of the pond. So it's the same as the aerial LIDAR, just underwater sure, with, right, yeah. with the multi-beam. You, well, you get several returns. It's different than LIDAR, remember. LIDAR is swath data. So you get real high detail point cloud of swath data. Single beam is just a single row of elevation points, one single line as you run. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. And what about multi-beam? Well, before we go to multi-beam, we'll, okay. we'll <laughs> single beam dual frequency. Now, remember how I said okay. single beam dual free single beam regular one frequency you get yeah. first return with dual frequency you have the the high frequency and then you have the low frequencies for the low frequency will penetrate the silt and give you more of the hot bottom again you're working with sonar you're working with different suspended sediments so it's it's an approximation many times but you'll see the top of silt and this is and and the hot bottom with it with dual frequency single beam and it's basically the same thing elevation shots but instead of one return you returns you get the high and low frequency so you get an elevation at top of silt and hot bottom and pretty much you're looking at the same thing you can that way you can calculate volume that that you have for sediment in the pond if they're going to dredge or something to that effect okay now with multi-beam how many of you seen all the cool shows about um South America, where they found all the old temples in the jungles using yeah. light out I just right? saw an article the other day about that yeah yeah, so most everybody knows what LIDAR is. It's, it's, it's swath data, so the higher you fly, the wider the swath, but the less dense the points are. 
You know, same thing with multi-beam. A lot of people will ask us to do multi-beam and it's swath data. So if we have a pond that's 10 feet deep, the swath is usually four or five times depth. So we'll get a swath of 40 to 50 feet of points, really densely point, points like light I did. It looks like a point cloud. And if, if, we, if we're in a hundred foot of water, the, the swath can be as wide as four or 500 feet. So it's very funny that when we bid ponds or estimate ponds for a client, they'll think a shallow pond is better, but when you're running multi-beam, you actually cover that floor bottom much quicker in a deeper pond. So a lot of times we'll tell them if it's under 10 feet, you might as well do single beam, save your money. But when you do multi-beam, it looks like LIDAR data, which I think you've all seen. Mm -hmm. It's a very dense point cloud. It's swath data, you overlap your swath. Um, and then you can see things like, you know, piles, um, uh, rocks, um, old tires, sunken ships in very high detail 3D point cloud. Um, it's not as high detailed as LIDAR, but it's it looks very similar. David, would you add anything to multi-beam? I think you pretty much covered it right there. Multi-beam is basically taking uh, that, that, uh, that one depth from below your boat, similar to a consumer grade fish finder. Um, it's taking that, that, that single beam and, uh, and multiplying it. So um, you might use a multi-beam um, echo sounder that's got 512 beams or even 1,024 beams as opposed to just that one beam. And each of those beams is going out and hitting an object on the seafloor, returning, and uh, it's being calculated into a distance and creating that point cloud. Gotcha. Yep, yep. that makes perfect sense. So, uh, David G., talk about how water conditions affect these these different techniques. Um, I know there's you know issues with you know the like you said the murkiness of the water, the pH or the acidity or whatever. Talk about that just a little bit if you would. Well, water conditions um, is kind of a, a broad category, and, and um, to to address the ones that you brought up. So, for example, your pH, your salinity, your murkiness of the water, those might affect your sound velocity. Hmm. So when you are going to conduct multi-beam bathymetry, you've got to know what the sound velocity is all the way throughout your water column so that your distances to your objects can be calculated appropriately. So the way that we compensate for that is with every time we do a multi-beam survey, we will take along what's called a sound velocity profiler and it's just its own little sonar device that we will lower down to the seafloor and then bring back up and record a profile of all the different sound velocities that were reported uh, or that were that, that it was recorded on its way down and it's on its way back up. We, we then take that and use that post-processing to correct the data. And um, that kind of takes out any distortions you might see by that change in sound velocity. And that'll come from things like a, a halo cline um, if you're on a coastal area. So you've got this salt water and fresh water mixing during tidal times. And um, that halo cline, which is a, which is just kind of a, a hard layer of difference in salinity, is going to cause a jump in sound velocity mm -hmm. as that sound reaches into denser water. And that's really going to uh, distort your the calculations of those distances if you don't know what that sound velocity is going to be. So that's that's a big way that the water quality affects multi-beam data. And then other ways that it'll affect it is, say, for example, you're doing a, you'd say something like a single beam survey, 
and you're just in a, a very muddy uh, pond with a lot of suspended clay sediment, um, sometimes that echo sounder has a hard time finding the bottom. And it's just pinging off of uh, suspended sediments and just basically creating just its own little cloud instead of seeing the actual bottom. And so sometimes that can be a real problem and you've got to do some manual checks to try to figure out uh, what's real and what's not real and try to clean that up in post-processing. Wow. Pretty complicated for sure. So Davo, give me a ballpark idea. What what is the cost for this technology? And I'm sure it, it, it varies, but I know like traditional land surveying, of course, the technology is changing essentially daily at this point. And uh, there's, there's a cost associated with that. Talk about it a little bit. Yeah, it's, I will talk about that. It's, it's an interesting field right now because, and I think you guys have probably seen this on the internet, everybody has a USV now, an unmanned survey vessel, a remote control boat, and you could just toss those things in the water and start mapping. Um, the cost really varies widely um, depending on depth of water, logistics. You wouldn't believe how hot it is sometimes for these guys to put a boat in the water. So we do some mine cuts, and you were talking about mining earlier. I actually should have offered you a job because you sound like you have a lot of skills we need. But um, just getting the boat in the water sometimes can be the toughest part. Once David gets the boat in the water, it's up and going. But basically, you can, you can do a, a small bathymetric survey, you know, on, you know, a, a, a berth or something, you know, for a ship at the port. And it could be just a couple, three or $4,000. So you can have it as little as that. Or you could be mapping all of Tampa Bay and it could be $500,000. Or you could be mapping out in the Atlantic Ocean and mapping miles upon miles upon miles where you have a 150 foot vessel that sleeps a crew of 10 and you're basically burning about hundred grand a day. Wow. And so now you're talking millions of dollars. So like all those solar fields that they're building off the East Coast, mm-hmm. they're mapping all those areas with multi-beam, um, side scan, magnetometer to make sure they're not going to hit any cables or anything when they set anything. I mean, so they're spending millions of dollars on that. And so we've really taken the approach at ServTech because we're a smaller company. I mean, even though we're 100 people, that we have a whole fleet of USBs. I think David has four or five USBs that do multi-beam, single-beam, dual-frequency, single-beam. And then we have a one-man multi-beam boat, which is really innovative. He can drop that in almost anywhere. And so we do a lot of little efficient surveys probably for under 10 grand you know river crossings ponds and so forth that's kind of an interesting thing here he said about multi-beam and making sure that they're not putting these solar fields on top of cables that's something yeah. that's super interesting to me those submarine cables and even just doing a google search and looking at a map of those submarine cables you can see those are really everywhere i just i it's so amazing to me that we have something like that just resting on the bottom <laughs> of the ocean floor and goes for that many miles and there's so many of them unbelievable i wasn't even aware of them to be honest with you yeah it's, no, I've, seen, YouTube. I've seen a map of it and it's crazy youtube wow. that surprised they don't get hit more often and communications are going out or something i mean it's amazing it really is mm. unreal well, that's because of you guys that they're not getting hit multi-beam yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> multi-beam side scan magnetometry all those things all those technologies that are at play there yeah so dave you just mentioned one of the challenges one of the biggest challenges is getting getting the boat in the water plain and simple i have to believe there's other challenges that go along with this type of surveying and you know risks and danger and that type of thing uh dave g talk about that a little bit well, uh, down in Florida, you got the gators. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other issue. <laughs> now, believe it or not, we were doing a survey a couple of years ago, 
down on the Everglades and we were going up up and down. There's all these canals out there that are that are dredged and maintained by the Army Corps of Engineers. And so they've got to they've got to maintain those by getting an idea of how much sediment's in them and what the current depths are and everything. So they'll they'll have people go out there and, and uh, conduct bathymetric surveys. And there were gators everywhere uh, constantly. Wow. So that was kind of a, a fun thing <laughs> to have to uh, sometimes or outrun them or get into the boat quick enough so that you weren't battling them. And, and, uh, and I've always uh, had this kind of theory that, um, that alligators kind of spontaneously generate in Florida somehow. It seems like you, uh, you dig a, a pond of any size, even just a water trap in a, in a golf course. And somehow you'll see on the news within a month, there, there's going to be news that there's an eight foot gator in it. Wow. And uh, yeah, so they're everywhere. So there, there's a, there's a, a hazard you might not think of. Yeah. For- well, you didn't, you didn't tell him my favorite story, David. So on that same job, um, you guys have all heard of the Python problem down in the Everglades, right? <laughs> I was going to make rid of them. Yep. I was going to so, mention the pythons. Yep. Yeah. So they have a bounty on the pythons. They pay like so much a foot for the long the snake. And so my guys, one of my guys sees like a, a 25, well, I don't know if it's that big. It's probably, a, I think we measured, I think it was 18 and 19 foot python swimming along the water. <laughs> oh so he decides he's going to jump in and cut its head off, oh which he does. God. I give him credit. But I asked him and I said, well, why'd you do that? And he said, well, that's like 250 bucks. And I said, I could find a lot easier ways to make 250 bucks than jumping in the water and trying to cut off a python's head with one swoop <laughs> of a machete. So anyway, I mean, I guess all kinds of different dangers. No snake wrangling for me, boys. No, thank yeah, you. No, man. thank you. Yep. Um, and of course, weather, right? I mean, that's obviously a huge challenge. Yeah, I'll touch on it with the water. And I think Dave will t- bag me up on this. You almost have to have two of everything. Anytime you work mm. on the water, salt water, um, they run into a lot. Like, I think poor David, because I'm such a tyrant, is driving to a job tonight to finish tomorrow. I think that's where he's on his way to. <laughs> because they were pulling a side scan towfish. And they hit a rock with it and it ripped the fin off. So they couldn't map anymore with it. You know, so you got to avoid obstacles in the water. You got to make sure that you don't get stranded 25 miles offshore because your boat conks out. Um, that's we run dual engines on our big boat. But still, if they both if you had a gas problem or something, you could you could run under that. Um, if your GPS or your IMU or any of your sensors or any of the cables or any of the drivers stop working, you're kind of remote. So you have to be very, to be a hydrographic surveyor, you have to be very independent and be able to fix things on the fly and figure out computer problems on the fly. And so you just can't, you know, drive back to the office really quickly. So (laughs) that's one of the bigger problems. When you're on the water, you're on the water. Yeah, that's a really good point. David G, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think, uh, I think that is also a really good point to bring up to me I, I feel like in my experience that defines a lot of the hydrographic survey experience is having redundant systems and being prepared for issues to arise uh, because as I always like to say you know I tell my crew this and I talk to people I say hey you know it's there's a hundred moving parts when you go do hydrographic survey I mean there's the all of the sophisticated equipment you're working with, there's the computers you're working with, you've got your boat and all of the things that come along with the boat. You've got uh, the specifications of the client. There's the 
having to get in and out of certain water bodies and every water body is different and every type of survey is different. And so um, you've got to be able to uh, be flexible in that regard. And so, and then of course, weather is, you know, in Florida, especially in the summertime, it's just a persistent uh, thing that you're going to be dealing with. So I I always say, you know, you've got a hundred moving parts. Statistically, one of those parts is going to be broken at any given time. Yeah. So you just got to, that, that's just what it's about. You just got to be ready for that. And that's, that's what, it, that's what you're doing. You're constantly looking for the next thing. I feel like an astronaut. I'm oh. waiting for that, for that next thing <laughs> to, to break. So, so I'm ready to fix it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's great. Well said. So being a, a resourceful person is a, a, a very valuable trait in, the, in that industry for sure. They're Boy Scouts. Always be prepared. Yeah, like Swiss Army knife. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yep. No doubt. So, um, you know, being in Florida, of course, you guys. I mean, there's obviously a huge need for hydrographic surveys here in Arizona. Not so much. Not, Not so, so much. much. Not so much. So, <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, trust me. I wish there was more of a need for it. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say this is the type of surveying I'd be into. I'd do this in a heartbeat. Yeah, no. If doubt. we could do, but how many times do you need a scan Lake Pleasant? Exactly yeah. for sure. One, one and done. Yeah, yeah. Yep. But that being said, talk a little bit about your like a typical client uh, that requests hydrographic surveys, and you know, really who this type of survey benefits. Well, that's, it's a very wide range. So I would start off with the easy one, which you said mining. There is a lot of mining ponds, uh, acidic ones. Uh, you know, a lot of them made national news lately. The one down in Manatee County um, that was going to overflow. They were worried about it bursting. Um, so the mining industry hires us all the time. Another industry you probably wouldn't think of, the power industry. Um, they have a lot of cooling ponds. We do a lot of work. We do the, the channels out to bring their coal in, even though nobody thinks we burn coal anymore, but they do bring coal into the, the power industry. So we'll, we'll survey their channels. Um, all the ports, you know, all of our goods and services, well, not all of them, but most of them come into the ports in the United States. So you got to keep those shipping channels clear. If there's a hurricane, those channels got to be cleared almost immediately. Um, the Army Corps of Engineers is typically responsible for that. So we, we do have multiple contracts with them where we do surveying for them. But we also do it for the local ports. We also do it from local municipalities. The gas industry, and when I say gas industry, transmission lines, when you've got natural gas lines running under a river, um, they need to stay buried. They don't want to be exposed because if they get hit by a boat, there's a big kaboom issue. Um, so we do a lot of surveying for gas crossings, um, telecommunication crossings, making sure that stuff's not exposed. And then just your everyday, I mean, we've done things in retention ponds and subdivisions where they've silted up and they're not getting drainage. We've done surveys in those. Uh, And then the local, you know, just the local harbor where they, you know, they have ships docking and coming and so forth. And a a big thing is, is these expensive subdivisions on the water. If they have canals to the ocean and they can't access the ocean because they're silted in, we do a lot of those canal surveys as well. So um, and so for even for private citizens. So it's 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 a pretty wide range all the way down to the private citizen, all the way to the federal government. He's talking about where Tom Brady and Derek Jeter live. Oh. I think I was talking about York, Maine. <laughs> yeah. York, Maine. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, they almost, uh, if Tom Brady would have dropped that trophy into the water, oh my goodness. there would have been a huge need for some uh, hydrographic yes, survey. We were hoping. There would have yeah. been some scuba, <laughs> scuba divers. Yeah, we would have gone out with multi-beam <laughs> and found it. We would have been heroes. So. You would have seen the Lombardi just on the screen. That's awesome. Standing straight up on the seabed. <laughs> yeah. Now, we've talked endlessly about the need for surveyors and and the lack thereof uh what's the demand for hydro surveyors and with that are there specific licenses or certifications required to perform this type of surveying that's a very interesting question because as you can imagine land surveying is very different than hydrographic surveying it's it's a, it's a different industry it's different technology but a lot of a lot of your agencies require you to be a professional land surveyor like I am to oversee hydrographic survey jobs, even though in reality, it's two different things. There is a certification called a certified hydrographer. Um, and you, you have to spend so many hours on the boat, collecting in the field, processing data, and then you go sit for a test and pass that. But it's not a license, it's a certification. So that's a, that's a little unique. Um, and as far as colleges, there's, there's some good programs up there. I can think of one in Cape Fear, North Carolina. Um, there's a Stockton University. Um, there's, a, there's a few universities that teach um, hydrographic surveying, and there's young men and women kind of coming out of there. But there is a shortage of people right now, whether it's land surveying or hydrographic surveying. It's hard to find people at the moment. So you guys are struggling just as much as land surveyors. Yeah, you probably shouldn't bring that up to David right now. He's got so much work, and, and I mean, we're just really struggling to find people because at least with surveying, if you went to any town, there's probably 20, 30 survey companies. So there's a range of people doing land surveying. If you go into Tampa, even though we're on the water, there's probably only a handful, four or five firms that do hydrographic surveying. So it's a it's a more special specialized skill set. So it's it's probably more difficult to find hydrographic people than than land surveyors. It's even more specialized. Oh boy. Yeah. Ugh, crazy, crazy. <laughs> All so, I hear for David G is cha-ching. Yeah, well, let's, let's let David G talk on that. <laughs> uh, he's right. We, we could use a good hand. If you uh, got some certified hydrographers listening to this podcast or even just people with hydro experience, uh, hit me up. Find me on LinkedIn. I could definitely uh, use some people. And we've got a lot of work these days, so um, we need use people that are ready to hit the ground running. I like it. Great plug. Great plug for the company. David, oh, tell us a little bit about your company before we get too far uh, into this. Yeah, well, one thing I did want to mention on that topic, though, yeah. is that I've tried to pull a lot of land surveys into hydro surveying because I thought it'd be cool mm -hmm. and they'd really like to move over. And it's on a boat. It's cool technology. And a lot of them say, Dave, I can't take this. Send me back to land surveying. So oh, wow. even though riding on a boat sounded cool to you guys, I think the resourcefulness and the stress level and never knowing you're never doing the same thing and you're on the water stresses people out. Um, so I, I didn't want to mention that. I'll talk to you about, about ServTech. Um, we basically started in, in 04 with two of us, myself, and you heard me say I had a business founder, Stacy, And um, we've grown into about 100 people in 17 years. Our claim to fame is we do almost every type of mapping that I can think of in the in the world today. So we start off with traditional land surveying, and obviously we're talking about hydrographic surveying here today, but then we move into subsurface utility engineering mm -hmm. with ground penetrating radar and EM, electromagnetic. 
Then we move into 3D scanning and 3D scanning, which is terrestrial LIDAR has become a huge thing. So we do indoor terrestrial scanning with SLAM algorithm where you don't use GPS. You know, it's, it's, it's more like that movie Prometheus where they throw the balls into the air and it maps instantaneously. Yeah. It's pretty cool stuff. And then we do a lot of that in industrial plants. Then we do a lot of um, aerial mapping from an airplane. So we have an airplane with a camera and a LIDAR sensor. Then we do a lot of aerial mapping from drones. We we do a lot of aerial LIDAR from drones. So that's kind of our claim to fame. We do we have two light LIDAR drones that fly all the time. Then we have a geophysical mapping department. So we map everything underground besides utilities like sinkholes. You guys heard about the Surfside building that collapsed. Well, we're starting to do starting to bid on doing some geophysics for other buildings where people are very concerned. Mm. And then we do something called metrology which you guys might know what that is. Everybody says meteorology, and I say, no, metrology. So it's very precise measurements um, where things have to be laid out to like one ten-thousandth of an inch with, um, you know, equipment layout, yep. 3D bridges, draw bridges and stuff like that. So that's pretty much everything we do in a nutshell. Yeah, you guys definitely run the gamut there. I was that's say, awesome. That's all, that's it? That's all you yeah. do? Yeah, you measure everything. <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> Um, so I, I did want to ask, um, like artificial intelligence and, you know, virtual reality, are are those things, is, is there a place for them in uh, hydrographic surveying? Oh, my God. No, yes and no. I mean, you'll see more of those things in the 3D scanning LiDAR world because of the high definition mm-hmm. where artificial intelligence, if you scan a fire hydrant, how does something know it's a fire hydrant without a human being telling it's a fire hydrant? How do they, how do they know it's a door or a window in a building? Um, I'm not going to say no, because I think, I think definitely the virtual reality, for example, um, someday I can, I can picture that maybe pilots bringing in large ships could actually have a virtual reality headset looking at the ocean floor to see what's down below. Totally. Um, so I'm not going to say it's coming yet. Definitely the LIDAR world or the terrestrial LIDAR is, is ahead of it a little bit in that arena. For sure. Yep. Uh, David G, anything to add to that? Sure. Yeah. When it comes to um, processing data, I, I could see that be, being more applicable to uh, uh, LIDAR when it comes to feature extraction. Um, one thing that's akin to artificial intelligence is that we do use autonomous survey vessels. Mm. So in the same way that you will send a a UAV, a drone up into the air and give it a pattern to survey. Uh, we do the same thing with um, hydrographic survey. We've just got a little autopilot board and we tell it where to go and it uses GPS to stay online. That's not exactly artificial intelligence, but it's kind of in that direction. So you know, sometimes I want to do a survey and I say, well, we'll let the robots do it. And, uh, and I'll put an autonomous vessel on the job. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe one day uh, artificial intelligence will play more into object avoidance uh, when it comes to being able to let that thing just go do the survey and, and you don't have to sit there and watch it like a hawk uh, to keep it from just running into something because it doesn't know any better. Maybe artificial intelligence is the type of thing that could uh, turn what is right now an autonomous vessel into a truly autonomous vessel. Hmm. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if they're already messing around with that out in uh out out in the ocean uh, there's a lot of um navy autonomous vessel work going on but uh, that's a little above my pay grade yeah 
Yeah. I, I think talking about the autonomous stuff and talking about out in the ocean too, we got to talk about Mariana Trench and, and Challenger Deep. Like, what we talk about multi beam, single beam, echo sounders. What what kind of equipment are they using to record these depths of 30, 35,000 feet? How, how do you even calculate or, or grab some sort of data like that? Well, I don't know if they're doing 35,000 feet. I may let David touch on that because that's outside my pay grade. I do know that our multi-beam system, I want to say, goes roughly to 500 feet in depth. So it's it's made for a certain classification. But those those bigger ships running multi-beam, they have systems that do map much deeper. I just, David, do you know the limits of how, how deep they, can they map like the Mariana Trench with those yet? Do you know? Uh, that's a good question. Honestly, I don't. I don't want to say something stupid. I don't think that they can do that from the surface, at least not in any detail. Um, I know out in the Gulf, whenever they want to map out the seafloor for oil exploration or pipelines, things like that, um, they're often sending um, autonomous submersible vessels that are equipped with uh, sonar equipment, um, which doesn't reach. So that's not reaching from the surface all the way down 8,000 feet to the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. That's, that, they're much closer to the, to the uh, water bottom at that point because they're actually sending the vessel down to it. Um, yeah, I don't yeah, and, When it comes to mapping the Marianas Trench, I, I don't know, man. I think, I think they're, they must be sending uh, um, ROVs or UAVs down there. If they're mapping it, they're probably doing a different type of technology because if you think about this, the sonar head has to push sound through water and get a return. So pushing sound that amount of distance through a water and getting a return that you can read probably isn't happening. They're probably mapping it with more of like sending down charges, making sound erupt with like seismic and then mapping the returns of what comes out. But that's what I'd have to guess. And I, as I told you, we, we don't do deep water work like that, but I think there's probably different methodologies because that's a lot of water to push through and get a return on for that depth. And, and your density of data gets, the further you go deep, you know, the swath spreads out, but you get less dense data. So you may get a point every 100 feet instead of, instead of 10 points in a, in a meter, you know. Sure. Yeah, I know that makes sense. And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about it. It's a little bit off topic, I guess, but I would rather <laughs> go to space for five minutes mm-hmm. than to go seven miles deep in the ocean. I'd be scared either way. Well, Have you ever seen the uh, James James Cameron documentary? Which one? When he, when he went to the bottom of the trench. No. And his submersible, he did it back back in like 2012. There's a documentary yeah. on it. Mm-hmm. And he went and hit the bottom there in the trench. I think it was like 36,000 foot or something. Unbelievable. Really? Yeah. That's crazy. So there, wow. I just was looking it up a little bit too just while we were talking. There has been 20 people that have been to the bottom so far as recently as April of 2021. Oh, wow. Just a couple of months ago. Um, and as early as 1960. Um, and just talking about one thing that I kind of saw here is interesting too, is um, 18, 1875 was the first time the trench was sounded. Wow. So, and they, they got a, in 1875, they got a recording of 26,000 feet. So oh who knows gosh. how they got that or how, what they were using, what technology, but yeah. it must've been what we were talking about earlier, the pole. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a big pole. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. line and pole, line and pole at 26,000 foot. Wow. That's insane. My goodness. So one other thing I, I want to mention just because it caught my attention when I was looking like Wikipedia, of course, uh, was, in, you know, crowdsourcing is a big thing. And I saw this thing on Wikipedia about crowdsourced hydro- hydrograph- hydrography. Hydrography? Uh, hydrography. 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 Yeah. Do, do you guys know anything about this? Have you heard anything about crowdsourcing <laughs> yeah. hydrography? Graphic surveying? No, I, I don't. Do you, David? 
Yeah, I, um, so you will see on Google Earth when you turn it on, um, sometimes if you, uh, if you go look in, in the middle of the ocean, you'll see a bunch of crisscrosses all over it. And um, those, are, those are actually the paths of vessels that have contributed their data to these uh, crowdsource things. Oh, wow. So when they say, when you hear people say like, oh, yeah, we know more about the moon than we know about the oceans and all this crap, um, they're just talking about the fact that it, when it comes to having this stuff mapped out in any detail, yeah. there is a tremendous amount of water bottom to map. So the only way you're going to get like the Atlantic Ocean mapped is to gather all of the sonar data of all of these transatlantic uh, shipping vessels sure. that are going back and forth and, and just turning that into a, a map. That, 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 I believe, is what you're talking about. That, that is a, a form of crowdsourced sure. hydrography. And that's the way we're going to go from having explored 5% of the oceans or whatever the number is they like to tell um, into really being able to say that we have a detailed bathymetric map of the planet Earth. Wow, that's insane. So is that realistic? Like, let's just assume that all these shipping sh vessels had this equipment on there. How long would something like that take to get everything i mean obviously these guys aren't going up like to the north pole or some of these like more um like remote areas but if they all had this equipment would we be able to get a, a full picture of what it looks like underneath there and have a google maps type environment uh, sort of but again we're talking about they're just measuring the depth below surface they're just doing kind of single beam basically so mm. when i was saying um you know i don't think that they're doing a lot of detailed mapping of the mariana trench from the surface it's because it comes to using something uh, that can give you a more detailed mapping um, surface, and uh, that's not really something you're going to get from a shipping uh, shipping container ship, one of those super tankers or something like that. Yeah. So it ultimately it would take you would never get the whole surface of the bottom of the ocean that way, uh, and also you would you're only getting the trade routes. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of places they're not going. So that's something to consider as well. So I want, I want to make sure I heard you right. And maybe you're just throwing the number out there. Uh, so what the earth is like, what, 70% water or something mm -hmm. like that, mm -hmm. right? Which still blows my mind. But of the seven of that 70%, what percentage do you think has been mapped, I guess? Mapped or mapped accurately? I've uh, heard like you know three, what? four, five percent But yeah. that just might yeah. just be like a... That's what I've read. I've heard that same, you know, 5% of the ocean or whatever. I don't know if that's true. You know who would know that, though, is uh, NOAA. So they've got a, a coastal um, survey yeah. program. Right. Those guys know. So yeah. I bet if we checked on their website, we'd probably find the answer to that. So uh, if you guys have it in front of you, you might, you might even come up with that answer pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. I think the map accurately is the big thing because even NOAA, is right now looking at mapping all near shore and inland waterways more accurately. Um, you know how they did the three depth program with LIDAR where they're doing LIDAR across the entire country, no is. They're now moving to the water bodies and trying to map those accurately. So um, I think there's probably charts on almost every part of the ocean, but how accurate are they would be the question I would have, you know? Yep. Yeah. Does, uh, does FEMA do a lot of this surveying or contract out a lot of this surveying? It mostly goes through NOAA, oh, through NOAA. Um, okay. but, but, you know, the state of Florida just 
the governor just signed a big bill for $600 million for um, resiliency and, and, you know, mapping. So it, a lot of it's going to come out of the state of Florida quickly. And there's people that want Noah to manage it. There's people that want, you know, the DEP to manage it. You know, it's a real political football at this point. But if you have coastal areas that are prone to hurricanes with the whole, you know, sea level rise and all that, um, having accurate maps of those areas is is real important. So they're going to see a lot of funding for that. Got it. Got it. Really good stuff. I got a, a quick fact check here real quick. We talked about that yeah. them surveying that in 1875 and how they did it. I just yeah. did a little bit more research. It says they used a weighted rope. So 27,000 feet with a weighted rope in 1875. That sounds like a that sounds like a wives' tale. That is some magnet fishing right there. Yeah, that is some serious <laughs> magnet fishing. Hold that thing up. I mean, Lord. He had forearms this big, I think. So. Yeah. Popeye, Popeye did that one. Yeah, yeah Popeye. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. Well, I'll tell you what, we got to kind of start wrapping this up. Shoots, why don't you hit him up with your most favorite uh, question of all time? My favorite question of all time. We'll start with David G. Do you have a mantra that you live by? Oh, man. Uh, man, no, I guess I don't. I probably ought to get one. We could, you uh, want, if you want to borrow one. Add value, <laughs> make friends. <laughs> all right. Uh, so if I were to borrow somebody else's mantra, you got me on the spot here. Um, I guess it would uh, probably be David O'Brien's mantra, get back to work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right, Davo. Did he steal your thunder? No, he didn't steal my thunder. I mean, and, and David knows this. I mean, the mission the mission statement of ServTech is is to better the lives of our employees who in return will make the difference for our clients. So I'm I'm a big believer in people. I mean, I we probably have more technology than most survey firms out there, geospatial firms. But at the end of the day, if you don't have the people and the relationships and the communication, you, you can't, you know, you can't really take advantage of that technology. So uh, I'm big on relationships, you know, and people. Yep. Yep. Good stuff for sure. So we got, I believe in people and get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Fair enough. Uh, Karen, fair enough. Can't argue with that. So I'm just curious. I don't know why it just came to my mind, but you know, geomatics is a pretty broad term for surveying and mapping and all the things we're talking about. Would you say that hydrographic Surveying falls under the geomatics umbrella. I would say yeah. so, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. For sure. Well, hey, really interesting stuff, guys. And I, I appreciate you guys being here. Shoot, you got anything else? No, that. I have learned a lot tonight. I have too, actually. I'm this not going to lie. Yeah. Yep. This is yep. something I've been interested in since I was little, little, little. I'm always looking up, watching videos and the cables and the trenches and all that. James Cameron, all that kind of stuff. So it's super interesting. Yeah. To me. So much unknown when it comes to the ocean. Yeah. And, it's, it's like, it's and again, um, uh, Dave G said this a little bit earlier, but like people love to throw in. Who knows how true this is? But they're like, we know more about space than we know about our own I oceans. Don't know. I don't right. Think so. So, yeah, who knows? But people like know. to say that. I, I guess I kind of like to believe that because it's kind of spooky, but yeah, yeah. leaves a well, little air of mystery. Well, you've seen the big push lately, though, with all the UFOs that are going into the yes, oceans. Yes, yes. You I've know? seen well, that. Atlantis down there. Yeah. Wouldn't you that be know? something? I mean, if you, what are if Dave you're going to have an alien base. down there. Yeah. yeah, put it on the bottom of the ocean. So. If you guys find any uh, UFOs or uh, alien cities down there, make us like your third call because I would love to know about that. Yeah, it's like Good Morning America and then us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, in a lot of the mapping that's done that's by the government, 
when they find shipwrecks and stuff, they actually clean it out of the data so that when it goes out to public sources, you won't find shipwrecks in any of that data. Wow. So they actually clean it. So if they found an alien base, we'd never know about it probably. Oh, be they'd clean that right up. Right up. Of course no. not. Crazy, crazy. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much again for being here. Any last words? Uh, Dave G., anything else you'd like to get out there? I just want to uh, tell everybody to just enjoy what you do. Um, life is all about exploration, especially if you're a curious person like me. If you get a chance to do something like hydrographic survey or survey in general or science or anything that falls into that, that kind of realm, I mean, you just got to go for it. You only get one life, and that's just what I'd like to say to people. Maybe that's my mantra. I was yeah, just I was gonna, gonna say, say, there it is. <laughs> we just had to give you a little time. I liked it. Bam, you crushed it. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't even think about it. I was answering a different question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, thanks for that, Dave G. And uh, again, thanks for being here. Be safe out there, of course. Uh, Dave O, you got the last word. My thing is you can either follow your fears or be led by your passion. So guys, just whatever you're passionate about, go out there and do it. That's what I'm saying. So thank you for inviting us tonight. We really enjoyed it. So yeah. thank you. This is a multi-mantra episode. Yeah, a lot of good words there in the last five minutes. <laughs> so much wisdom. Write those around. down. Write those down. Put those on your mirror. Should I say floating around? <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, again, thank you so much. We'd love to have you back sometime if uh, you'd grace us with your presence. Um, amazing. I mean, thank I, you both. I, I learned a lot tonight, so thank you so much. So. Uh, That'll do it, guys, right? Absolutely. Put a bow on it. All right. Another uh, friend-making, value-adding show. Please be sure to check us out at thegeoholics.com. Like and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. We're, you know what? We are 20 people away from 1,000 members of our LinkedIn group. Help us out, guys. There's yeah. going to there's gonna be a prize on. for the 1,000th member. Trust yeah. me. You share, better jump on it quick. Friend. That's going to exactly. go fast. You can download all our podcasts from the new podcast app available at lanceversionited.com. As I mentioned earlier, send us an email at info at thegeohawks.com. If you have any ideas for what do we do after episode 100, I have no freaking idea. Hopefully somebody comes up with something. Last but not least, please support our amazing friends of the program, such as Safety Apparel, every chance you get. Be sure to mention your Geohawk for the VIP treatment. Pay it forward. Add value, make friends. White Snake, still the night, available everywhere. Until next time, everybody, be safe and healthy. Once again, a shout out to our friends of the program, Aerotech Mapping Inc., ATMLV.com, Advanced Geodetic Surveys Inc., AGSGPS.com, Bad Elf GPS, Bad-Elf.com, Cobb Fenley, CobbFenley.com, Cyanic Automation, GetJobBook.com, Diamondback Land Surveying, DiamondbackLandSurveying.com, Get Kids Into Survey, GetKidsIntoSurvey.com, Land Surveyors United, LandSurveyorsUnited.com. Mentoring Mondays, mentoringmondays.xyz, Monson Engineering, monsonengineering.com, Nettleman Land Consulting, nlcprep.com, Parkland Community College, parkland.edu slash surveying, Safety Apparel, safetyapparel.us, Tiger Supplies, tigersupplies.com, Trimble Geospatial, geospatial.trimble.com.